Well, good morning. It is good to be back with you once again after an impromptu week without you last week because of uh, my youngest son Silas's uh, decision to check out Children's Hospital for a couple of nights. And uh, we were there for from Saturday through Monday, and but by God's grace, everything is uh, all better, and he's back home, and he's back to his normal, ornery self again. So uh, we're grateful for your prayers. We're grateful for uh, for the opportunities that you have taken advantage of to reach out to us, to text us, to message us, to really live out the we are family that preaches well and looks great on t-shirts, but it's really, really cool to experience it in real time. So thanks for being such an awesome church family, thinking about us and praying for us. And uh, thanks also to the team that's able to, uh, to fill in and make things happen seamlessly, flawlessly, even uh, on a late Saturday night as I'm frantically texting and emailing them, letting them know uh, what has come about in our lives. So, uh, but he is great. He's back home. Uh, he was severely dehydrated, and uh, he got his fluids and his rest and got to take a stethoscope home, and now he's pretending to be a doctor all the time, but an evil doctor. He's pretending to be an evil doctor, and he, he puts the stethoscope on, and he does this twirl, and he sticks his hand up in the air, and he says he's Dr. Silas, just like that. Dr. Pause Silas, and that's not a good thing. He'll, he'll, he'll kill you, but, but anyway, he's back to his normal self. We love him, and uh, we're glad to be back here as well. Uh, just before we get into the preaching of the word, just one more announcement Uh, is that we are having Connect next Sunday. Connect is an opportunity for people who are fairly new to Grace. If you've never been to Connect, it's just a, really, it's free lunch. You have an opportunity to uh, spend some time with other people like yourself who are new to the church. Uh, And uh, I'll be there. There'll be some other key leaders there. We'll enjoy some lunch together. I'll give you a super fast flyover view of the history of our church and uh, why we're here. But the vast majority of our time is really spent just hanging out and sitting around a table and just enjoying lunch together and talking, talking to one another, getting to know one another. So that's next Sunday after church, uh, after the service. It'll be over in the fishbowl, which is in our classroom area and office area. Um, we'll have lunch over there. If you think you're going to go to that, uh, if you could log on to graceky.org and register... You just scroll down to the calendar of events, you'll see Connect. Just register so we get a headcount, we know how much food to, to bring. Uh, we would really look forward to uh, spending that time with you. So consider joining us next week. Uh, I hope that you'll uh, carve out that time to be there and to enjoy some free food and uh, just relax with us and get to know us as we get to know you. Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Genesis, chapter 3. beginning in verse 1, and if you are physically able, would you please stand in the honor of reading of God's holy word, and read along silently as I read aloud Genesis 3, verses 1 and following. This is what the word of God says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some of it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it, All the days of your life, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it. You were taken for you are dust and to dust. You shall return father in heaven. We are grateful for the time that we get to spend hearing from you. And that is our desire this morning, Lord, that You would speak to us through your word, that you would change us, conform us to your image, that we might live lives that are pleasing to you and a blessing to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we kicked off a new sermon series entitled Redeeming Work. Now, if you subscribe to my weekly emails, perhaps you saw the fun fact that I included this past Friday, and that is this, that if you work... 40 hours a week for, say, 40 to 50 years, you will spend at least 100,000 hours of your life working. That's 4,167 days of your life, otherwise known as just under 11 and a half years straight working. Therefore, the sermon series that we're in called Redeeming Work is something that's speaking directly to a huge chunk of your life. And if you're perhaps younger among us, you're not in the workforce, or you haven't embraced the vocation and figured out what God's calling is for your life, it's coming. So this is going to be yours one day. So this literally impacts and affects each and every one of us. Last week, Pastor Brad showed us that God's design for us to work predates the fall. We saw that God himself is a worker and that he describes his having created all things as work. Genesis 2 verses 2 and following. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. God calls himself a worker. Later in that same chapter, God gives Adam a job. Genesis 2 verse 15. 
the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. All of this is before the fall. All of this is by God's design. None of this is affected by sin. This was God's original intention for mankind. As we read earlier, uh, Adam does, in fact, sin by eating of the tree that God commanded him not to eat. And as a result of the fall, sin enters the world and death through sin. Romans 5 and verse 12. That's when work gets hard. That's when work starts to stink. God curses work. But what I want to show you from God's word today is that although God curses work, he doesn't condemn it. Again, although God curses work, he doesn't condemn it. And I want you to see that. Take a look at Genesis 3, verses 14 and following. Check out what God says to the serpent. In verse 14, he says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. There's no hope for the serpent. There's no yeah, but for the serpent. There's no but good news for the serpent because the serpent is Satan and we know that his doom is sure. We sang that earlier today, right? There's no hope for him. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this is a prophecy, a foretelling of sorts of what's going to happen as his offspring, the offspring of the serpent, might be nipping at the heel of God's anointed son, but ultimately God's anointed son will crush the serpent and have rule and reign and victory over death and sin. But suffice to say, you'll notice the serpent is condemned. Evil is condemned. There's no hope for the serpent. Now, compare that to what he says to Eve and then to Adam. Look at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So the woman who was going to bring bring forth children anyway, now it's going to hurt. But do you see the grace in that verse anyway? I want you to see that. In pain, you what? Shall bring forth children. It's going to hurt, but God's still going to allow you to participate in the procreation of mankind. It will be painful. It is now cursed, but there's even still grace in the curse. We don't see that when he condemns Satan. We don't see that in the serpent, but there's still grace. There's still something redemptive. It's going to hurt. It's going to be hard. It's affected by sin and death, but we can still procreate. We can still give birth. Women can still do that. Look at verse 17 to what he says to Adam. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, what? You shall eat of it. Not cursed is the ground and guess what? You're not going to be able to get any food from it. Cursed is the ground and just try to eat from it. I dare you. It's not going to happen. You're going to die. He says right there, cursed is the ground in verse 17 because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it. But it's going to be hard. Uh, Verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you what? You shall eat the plants of the field. There's a promise in that curse. You're still going to be able to, I'm still going to provide for you, Adam. I'm still going to allow you to work. This is redeemable. It's just cursed. It's very, very hard. That's totally different to what you see him saying to the serpent. Work is cursed, but it's not condemned. 
Work is cursed, but it's not condemned. There is something redemptive that is possible in the work that we do, even though work is cursed. And that's what we're going to look at today. The fact that there is redemptive good in the work that you do. You say, well, that's a pretty broad statement. Like, you don't know what each and every one of us does. Maybe there's not something redemptive in what we do. You don't know what I do or what it's like to do what I do. And that is true. I can't change what you do uh, or what it's like to do what you do, nor do I claim to know it. But what I hope I can do is present to you a better reason from God's word uh, to do what you do. So I want to look at God's word and I'm, it's not going to be so much today about how to do what you do or what to do and what you do, but why. I think the why drives everything. If you can have a solid why, a solid reason from God's word to drive you to do what you do and how you do what you do, that'll make all the difference in the world. So I can't change the details of your job or what it's like to be you, but I hope from God's word I can show you a better why, a better reason to do what you do. And for that, let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew Uh, The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Matthew, chapter 22. And take a look at verses 34 and following. But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, Which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So here's what I want you to see. What's happen- we don't have a ton of time to get into the whole context of what's happening there. But suffice to say, what we can take from the text is this. That there was a lawyer, verse 35, who asked Jesus a question, but that the question was loaded. He asked him this question to test him. And he says, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What's the great commandment? Hoping that he would pick a commandment. And thereby, by saying this commandment is great, he's saying the others are not so great. So he's trying to corner him. But Jesus, being like the son of God, sees this coming and answers in a way that is brilliant. And he answers with what's known as the Shema. Okay, the prayer that the Jewish people would pray, even today, that Jewish people pray on a daily basis, repeatedly. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The Mark and uh, passages, and with all your strength. He says, well, this, here's the greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And here, you know what? What with me being Jesus and all, I'll give you a two for one. Here's a second one that's like it. You should love your neighbor as yourself, which he gets from the book of Leviticus. So he links those two things together and pulls off an awesome messianic mic drop. And now he silences the rest of the crowd. And he has answered his question and also realize this, that every one of the Ten Commandments can be summed up in either love for God or love for neighbor. So in answering the question, he kind of didn't answer the question, right? Because he said, yeah, they're, they're all great. They're all awesome. Love God. Love your neighbor. And you say, what does this have to do for work? Well, this, the bottom line of your job isn't simply an economic one. 
the bottom line of your job is not simply rooted in economics. Now, I realize that that matters. I realize that economics are important and that money is what makes the world go round in a very practical, human way. But the bottom line of your mentality going into your job is not just economics. It's not just looking at how much money you can earn for your company, how much money you can earn for your boss, how you can stay profitable, or if you work for an, a, a nonprofit organization like, like, like a church, how you can best use the funds and, and garner the funds that are coming in and use it for the purpose of which your organization exists. That's not the sole bottom line. Your sole bottom line as a Christian comes out of this verse that we just read. Love for God, love for neighbor. So God gives us this command, and with that command, we can assume God's enablement. God never commands you to do something that he just does for kicks and giggles. Like He's not commanding men to give birth and like elbowing other members of the Trinity saying, dude, watch this. He can't do it. <laughs> he can't do it. He doesn't do that. He's not out to get us. He commands us to do things, and then with that gives us the grace to be able to do them. So here's the thing. If the greatest commandment is love for God and love for neighbor, how does it impact your work? If that's the greatest commandment, that's your bottom line. Your bottom line for your job, no matter what you do, is love of God, love of neighbor, worship of God, and service to others. What would change for you if love for God and love for neighbor was the true bottom line on which you focused? How would that change your perspective on what you do, whatever you do? Love for God, love for neighbor. The things that I do are just the means for me to show love for God and love for neighbor. I want to do well at my job so that I can show love for God and love for my neighbor. Because on this hangs all the law and the prophets is what Jesus says. How would that change your approach to what you do? See, I think it's important that we remember that we're not to clock out of worship when we clock into work. Because I don't know at what point in church history we started referring to worship as a portion of a service. Like, we just finished worship, now we're going to stop worship and be seated and Peter's going to preach. Or I don't know at what point in history we started referring to our church gatherings as a worship service. Like, I'd love five minutes alone with the guy who invented that idea. Because then all of a sudden, we look at worship as this compartmentalized part of 168 hours in a week. Or a compartmentalized part of a worship service. When in reality, that's not what worship is. Worship is all of our lives. And I want to show that to you from Romans 12. You can turn there or you can look at it in your outline. Romans 12 verse 1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God... To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So let's take a look at that verse. We'll work backwards from the end. Which is your spiritual worship? What is that I present my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God? A living sacrifice. That on a regular basis, I would seek to live in a sacrificial way before the Lord Because this is my spiritual act of worship. This is my service of worship. And I do that driven by the mercies of God. That's what Paul says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the, in light of God's mercy, in light of what he's done for you in sending his son on the cross to save people like you and like me. 
Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which this is your spiritual worship. So it's not a portion of a service. And it's not just a day of the week. We as new covenant believers have the ability to worship God at all times, in all ways, even and especially at work. Right? The veil was written to. No longer is, is the, the, the holiest of holies just located in one place. And that's where God is. And a priest goes in and he communicates on behalf of you. That's not it. Now God communicates with us and lives with us on a face-to-face basis. That he indwells each and every one of you if you love the Lord. So we don't have to hold back our worship for a certain place. Or reserve our worship for a certain time. Or in the morning, you have your time with the Lord, you read your Bible, and then you clock out of worship as you clock into work. That's not what we're supposed to do. Your work is an act of worship, not simply because of what you do or even how you do it, but why you do what you do. It depends on that bottom line to which you're striving. If it's merely economic, you're going to have a hard time having an eternal perspective. And it's just going to be something you do to pay the bills. If your only bottom line at work is the bottom line at work, you're going to have a real hard time bridging that gap between Sunday worship and Monday work. We serve a greater bottom line. We've been called to something greater, love for God and love for neighbor. So the question is this, how can I obey the two greatest commandments with the 100,000 hours of my life that I'm likely to spend at work? How can I remain in line with love for God and love for neighbor as I crunch numbers or work construction or change a diaper or check an IV or give someone a ticket or maintain a database or teach a class? How can I keep love of God and love of neighbor central so that I might worship in my everyday life? Well, like I said, I can't get into the exact hows of each and every job. That's just impossible. But I will show you a starting place from the book of Colossians chapter 3, which you can turn there or it's in your outline. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 says this, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you see the words that are emphasized in your outline? Whatever you do. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So here, we're not reducing what we can do for the glory of God to just a certain couple of categories. Paul's clear. Whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. So the question is, what does that mean? Now, surely you've, I don't know if surely, maybe you've come across people who think that that means literally they have to say the word Jesus after a lot of the things that they do. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Like, they're, I'm going to give this to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to pray for you in the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to stamp this thing in the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to kick this box on the conveyor belt in the name of the Lord Jesus. Like, how many times can I say Jesus in one day? That's not, that's not what, what's being said there. Doing something in, in the name of the Lord Jesus means uh, I, I, I strive to act consistent with who he is and what he wants. How can I do my job in a way that is consistent with who Christ is and what Christ wants? That bridges that gap between work and worship. So if you do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, you're striving to act consistent with who he is and what he wants. And I'm sure there's a number of ways for you to do that. But if you look at the text, there's a great starting point in Colossians 3 and verse 17. 
Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Gratitude to God goes a long way, folks. A grateful spirit, a grateful heart goes a long way. I'm convinced more and more in my own life that my struggles with sin, kind of almost no matter what they are, are linked to ungratefulness perhaps more than anything else. That if I had more of a grateful heart, that if I acknowledged God more in the everyday I would probably would struggle a lot less. And that the more I try to cultivate thankfulness to God in my own life, the more I see other sins dying. And the more me finding it easier to put off other sins. Not easiest, but it's easier when I have a focus on God of being thankful for everything that he has given me. Thankful for the opportunity to work. Thankful for the opportunity to serve. Thankful for the skills you have to do the job that you do. Thankful for the provision that God makes through your job. Uh, I had a, a friend of mine back in New York who was, and he provided IT support for a season of his life while, I think it was while he was in college. And he would tell me just the funniest, just the funniest stories. Like he, tr- he helped this one, uh, this one lady in the office. She said, I've tried everything. I can't, I don't think, I don't, I can't even turn the computer on. I don't think there's any power to the machine. I don't know what it is. The lights are on in my office, but I'm not. And he got there and the, the, you can't make this up. The power strip was plugged into itself. Yeah. So he just ever so humbly unplugged the power strip, plugged it into the wall. So, you know, in the power strip was like, Plugged in the tower, plugged in the printer, plugged in the power strip. It was just literally it was just plugged in to one of the outlets in the strip. Plugged it into the wall. He saved the day. Um, and he would come home with the funniest stories sometimes, and we just we would talk about them, and they're just they're just hilarious. Um, now, there's two approaches you can have to that situation, and I'm sure in whatever you do, whether it's in an office or a, a, a blue-collar job and you're working with your hands more or you're in the field or you're a parent at home, there's, there's approaches you can have. You could say, um, you know, if, if idiots could fly, this place would be O'Hare. That's one approach that you could say. I'm just sorry, I can't believe I've had to do this. I can't believe that I have to, that I have to serve in this way. If, 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 the, the, who does these things? Who does these things? This is the kind of support I have to have. This is how I waste my time. Who does these things? And, and, if, and I want to acknowledge this. It, it might be true. You might work with a lot of idiots. Like that, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's not true. I'm just saying it's not helpful. That's not going to help you have that love for God and love for neighbor. That's not going to help you cultivate worship and work and bridge the gap between the two of them. So true as it may be that you're not working with the sharpest tools in the drawer, that's not going to help you cultivate a heart of worship as you work. Rather... Um, Seeing that God gives you an opportunity to serve people and he gives you these skills um, and a working mind and an able body and being thankful for all those things that come from him. You're able to do what you do. Mundane as it may be, uh, frustrating as it may be, you have skills, you have an opportunity, you have uh, a working mind, you have hands that can accomplish the task. And you can serve others in whatever you're doing, even if it's unplugging a power strip from itself and plugging it into a wall. God has given you the ability to serve in that 
way. Gratitude. You're thankful to be able to do that. You can even laugh. I mean, if you don't laugh, you'll cry, right? You've got to laugh at those things as they happen. But just remembering that you're thankful for the opportunity that you have to serve others, to provide for your family, to provide for yourself, to make money so that you can be generous with your money, whatever it is. Bridging that gap. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, root beer, craft beer, cheese sandwich, whatever you do, you can enjoy them and do those things to the glory of God. And giving God glory means giving him thanks, having a thankful heart and a thankful mind when it comes to looking at the work that you do. So think about it for a minute. What about you? Do you think you do a, a good job of seeing your work as, as worship of God? What, maybe there's one thing you can change to cultivate a heart of worship in your work, in your everyday life, so that it wouldn't just be you clock out of worship on Sunday or you clock out of worship after your quiet time and you clock into work. What can you do? What mindset can you have? How can you be praying? What can we pray for you to cultivate a heart of worship in what you do? Because the two greatest commandments, like we said, love for God and love for neighbor. So what I want to do now is I'm going to take the rest of our time and talk about love for neighbor. Because you'll see that the title of our sermon is that your work um, is an act of worship and service to others. Now, I hope you're looking for opportunities to be a light in the workplace. I hope you're looking for opportunities to to share the truth of the gospel. I hope you're praying for times when you can have the, like we said, the courage to stand, the confidence to speak, and share the truth of the gospel with the people you interact with. I hope you invite them to church. I hope you give them a gospel tract. I hope you share God's word with them. I hope you pray for them. I hope you pray with them. I hope you tell them directly and specifically about Jesus and use his name. I hope you're mindful of the fact that everyone you work with, that everyone you interact with, will spend eternity somewhere. Every single one of them will go either to heaven or to hell. I hope that drives you to want to share good news. Not good advice, good news. The gospel is good news. These are facts. You need to be saved. God has made provision for salvation through Jesus Christ. That's good news. And I hope that you're looking to share that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. John 14 and verse 6. That is most important. All I want to say is this. That is the most important thing and the most helpful thing you can share with coworkers. But listen, it's not all that's important. Most important, yes. Not the only thing that's important. And I think oftentimes we downplay what we refer to as common grace because we have such a heart for saving sovereign grace that we want to share with other people and see them saved that anything short of that is just we just kind of poo-poo on it and just brush it aside and if it's not an opportunity to witness it's just me doing the things but i don't think that's what you get from the word of god see i don't think we should downplay the common grace of god that we can show others in what we do at work 
Uh, there's many different ways. To, common grace is not a biblical term. It's a term that we use in systematic theology. And I put a, a, a definition in your outline that says this. Common grace is unmerited favor and goodness extended to all persons made in the image of the triune God, regardless of their eternal destiny. And uh, there's some scriptures there. James 1 and verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Friends, that is an important verse to know. That is an important verse to memorize. That's an important verse to keep in mind. Because God wants the glory for anything good in your life. Everything that is good comes from him. The opportunity to witness, the spiritual gifts that he's blessed you with, the t-shirt that you love. He wants to be thanked for all of those things. He says, no, it's all good. It all comes from me. Every good gift comes from above. Every perfect gift comes from above. Matthew 5 and verse 45. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That's Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, talking about what we refer to as common grace. And common grace, meaning that it's spread out to all people. They all enjoy the sun rising and the sun setting. That's not something that's just reserved for Christians, right? He makes his rain fall on the just and on the unjust. That on a rainy day, both farmers, the saved farmer and the lost farmer, benefit from the rain. This is common grace. So the farmer who is lost is really grateful that it's raining. The farmer that is saved is really grateful to God that it's raining because he knows who makes the rain. He knows who sends the rain. This is common grace. And I hope you want to share the gospel. I hope you want to be a witness to others of God's saving grace. But I hope you don't fall prey to the idea that anything short of a clear, fully thorough gospel presentation is not godly and not serving others because that's just patently untrue. Understanding common grace. Listen, I want you to get this. Understanding common grace is the only way you can make a connection between Christianity and your everyday life. If you don't have a robust theology of common grace, what you're going to do is you're going to compartmentalize. And you'll have a compartment in your life for the things that you think are spiritual and really godly. And you'll have a big compartment in your life for the things that are not. And then when you compare those two compartments, you're like, well, this is the opportunities that I have to witness at the workplace. And these are the things that I do that I just do for work. You think, I'm not, there's no worship here. I do this much stuff and this much praying with people. I do this much of my job and this much witnessing to people because you're paid to do this, not this. And if you compartmentalize, you're going to start seeing those things. I mean, and that can be in any situation in life, uh, any situation in life. It can be, you can have that at work. You can have that at home. Uh, there are some times that Sarah will share with me. I remember over the years when um, Justin was just coming into the knowledge of cemeteries. He would notice he would, you would. Yeah, we were driving around and you would point out cemeteries. There's a cemetery, there's a cemetery. Kind of morbid, but still. There's a cemetery, there's a cemetery. And Sarah would use this as an opportunity to talk to him about death, life, eternity, Jesus, heaven, and hell. These were great times. These were, this is this. Is this. Most of Sarah's days, though, are filled with bloody noses. And dirty diapers and uh, asking the kids to pick up their stuff and correcting sin and discipline and teaching. And not all of those things seem super spiritual. Sometimes you just have, it's just 
It's just getting the blood. It's hard to find Jesus in holding this part of the child's nose while the nose is bleeding. It just doesn't feel super spiritual as much as talking to the child about the cemetery and death and eternal. But there's more of this than there is of witnessing. If my wife or any stay-at-home mom falls prey to believing that the spiritual stuff the acts of worship and serving others are just in this little box and everything else is just the same because lost mothers do the same thing. You're never going to view your work as worship and service to others. Before I was a pastor, one of the jobs that I worked and really enjoyed is I was a, a headhunter. I did recruiting for um, uh, legal recruiting. So I, we, our firm staff, top tier law firms throughout New York City little bit of financial stuff, but mostly legal. And we would, anything from a receptionist to a managing partner. And uh, I remember our, our office was 58 West 40th Street. It was right across the street from Bryant Park. That's the big park behind the New York Public Library. And I'm sitting in that park with a coworker eating an overpriced salad. And we're sitting there having lunch. And she's talking to me about work. And I'm talking to her about work. And then she asked me a very pointed question with personal application to her about the Lord. And I was able to give her a very pointed answer and share the gospel with her. That was awesome. It was great. And there are other stories and other opportunities that I've had. Do you think I spent most of the 40 hours of my work week doing that? No. Why? It's not my job. I have other things that I need to do. So over here, there's sharing that with Liz. Over here, there's client calls and interviews and making cold calls to build up a candidate base and trying to talk somebody into making a temporary job, attempt to perm job and seeing if somebody lasts for 90 days. Cause I don't make my commission if they don't last 90 days and, 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 and trying to, 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 to play matchmaker between candidates and clients. That's what my job is. And if I can't see God in this, I'm not going to have an attitude of worship and I'm not going to realize that I'm serving others. Common grace, a robust theology of common grace is absolutely necessary for us understanding how we can make that link, how we can bridge that gap between Sunday worship and Monday work. Even if times to boldly share God's saving grace seem to be few, eagerly and joyfully look for opportunities to extend God's common grace at every opportunity because you need to know that that's also the mission to which we're called. All those non-evangelistic things are still acts of service to others. And as we do our jobs in our homes or at the offices or in the fields or wherever God has you most of your days, you're serving others. And that counts as something unbelievably God-honoring because God cares about that. Galatians 6 and verse 10. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to whom? Everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. 1 Thessalonians 5.15. It's in your outline. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. See, we need to remember that every person is an image bearer of God. And therefore, has intrinsic value and is to be respected and valued regardless of their behavior or their belief. Because that's what God does. Take a look at Luke chapter 6. It's in your outline. Jesus says, love your enemies and do good. And lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. 
and you will be sons of the Most High. Look at this. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Friends, God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. How is he kind to them? Because he lets them live. Because he causes rain to fall on their fields. Because he allows them to work the fields just like you do and still get something from it. Because he provides for their needs. They're not glorifying him for that, but he does it anyway. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. If we have a robust theology of common grace, I put in your outline what I think are five likely results. I'm sure there's a ton. Here are five likely results of having a robust theology of common grace. I think we'll be kinder and more courteous. Because it won't just be, well, I'm kind because that's how I was raised. Or I'm kind because it's just the polite thing to do. We'll connect it with a God-centered why. I'm being kind because this, this might be the soil that the Lord would use and the Lord would provide for me to plant that gospel seed one day. So for now, I'm, I'm tilling the soil. I'm preparing that by laying out the soil of common grace that I might plant a gospel seed in one day. Titus 3 and verse 2. Speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. We'll be better neighbors to those around us who are hurting. In Luke chapter 10, we read the parable of the Good Samaritan. And at the end, Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? It wasn't the two religious people who were hurrying up to something more important that was religious. It was the non-religious man who offered mercy and grace. And he's called the good neighbor. And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. If we understand common grace as something that is very, very spiritual and very, very pleasing to the Lord, we'll be more prone to look for opportunities to be good neighbors. We'll show Christian love and compassion for others instead of just putting up with them. You won't see people in your jobs or, 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 or your kids or your family members as people you just have to put up with because that's where God placed you. But try to show love and compassion because you'll realize, wow, This counts. This is my calling. Love for God, love for neighbor. I think we'll retaliate less and trust God more because we'll be aware of things like Romans 12, verses 17 and following. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And I think we'll look to connect with others Instead of having what I'm calling an us versus them mentality. An us versus them mentality where, well, there's the Christians and there's the non-Christians. And we're all separated. And it's like, ooh, I don't want to, I got to be apart. What if I catch what they have? We'll look to build connections with them because we realize that God could use these common grace things to do something really, really great and to represent himself well. Instead of being so polarized from the, ooh, they're Lost, they're this. They believe this politically, I believe that politically. And instead of being disgusted, we'll look to build bridges. Why? Because they're also image bearers and they need to be saved. What about you? As you look at your life, do you think you lack a lifestyle of common grace in your interactions and dealings with others? 
Because we can do that. We can have our eyes so focused on the gospel. And, and it's going to sound like I'm saying you could be too focused. You can't be too focused on the gospel. But we can have our, so, our eyes so focused on the target, see the target, hit the target, that we miss opportunities between here and the target to honor God and serve other people. If I'm not talking about Jesus, I ain't doing nothing. Well, calm down there, cowboy. That's not what the scriptures say. If possible, as much as depends upon on you, live peaceably with all. Therefore, let us do good to all people, especially to those of the household of faith. Uh, no, it doesn't matter. Well, why, why am I going to do that? Any lost person could do that. Shame on you and shame on me if the lost person is offering more common grace to somebody than the found person. Seeing what you do on an everyday basis as acts of common grace to the glory of God. Do you think you lack a lifestyle of common grace in your interactions and dealings with others? Do you just tolerate those you work with? Just kind of put up with them? Or do you, you consciously make an effort to demonstrate love and compassion and common grace? Wouldn't it be a shame if we're so busy holding out for that perfect opportunity to plant that killer seed, that silver bullet of the gospel of saving grace, that we ignore the common grace soil in which it's most likely to take root. Stuff that we could be doing right now before that opportunity comes to honor the Lord and to make ready that place so that when you are sitting in a park and somebody asks you something or standing by the copier and somebody asks you something or switching out an IV and somebody asks you something or changing a diaper and you're asked something, there's soil that has been worked on and is ready and is rich to have a gospel seed planted in it to the glory of God. Looking at our jobs as acts of worship, love for God, and service to others, love for neighbor, will radically transform the way we approach the 100,000 hours of our life we do what we do. Let me ask you to bow your heads. I'm going to close in prayer as Jesus comes up to lead us in our final song and I'm going to pray these things on behalf of us. And see which of these things, which of these prayers rings true for you. Lord, we all too often clock out of worship when we clock into work or clock out of worship when we leave this place or leave our small group. And Lord, we, we ask your forgiveness and help us to repent and to change. Lord, there are aspects of our jobs, of what we do for most of our week, that have never crossed our mind to do for your glory. It's just, we just do it just, just because. It's just, it's just a thing. Lord, help us strive to think differently about the everyday. Help us really see what it's like to do things for your glory, all things for your glory. Lord, we don't fully appreciate how our vocation or season of life or calling to where we are right now allows us to show 
common grace and work for the common good of others that brings you glory. Lord, we don't view the people we work with, the people we serve with, uh, with value. We don't always treat them with courtesy and respect, and sometimes we just, we just put up with them and seek to go home. Lord, we don't, we don't pray for our boss. We don't pray for him or her to understand you. We don't pray for those we work with and serve, for people we work alongside, uh, people we serve alongside them, people that we interact with that are our customers or our clients or recipients of our work. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness and for your help to change. Grant us repentance. We don't want to compartmentalize our lives. We're grateful that the veil has been torn in two from top to bottom, and we long to worship you with every hour of every day. Show us what that looks like and help us bridge the gap between worship and work so that there would be nothing but overlap. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.